0: Good morning, church. How was Christmas? Great. The rest of you, it was just a bummer? I suppose so. We're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So I'll give you a moment to find your places. We will then read the Word of God. We will... Pray, and then we will hear the word of God preached. It's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Okay, beginning in verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Verse 3, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took so they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, but when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for the opportunity to be together as one body, the opportunity, Lord, to assemble and to be addressed by your word. We know, Lord, that your word is not something trapped in the past written by authors who we're motivated by whatever purposes, but it's the Word of God. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces us to the deepest parts of our being. And we ask this morning that as your Word goes forth, that we would hear from you, Lord. That your Word would do the work that only it can do in our lives, which is to transform and to change. But we know, Lord, that your Word does not profit unless it's mingled with faith. And so we ask as well, Lord, that you would give us faith that we'd hear these words, not as the word of men, but what they really are, the word of God. And that as a result, they would profit, mingled with faith that it would bear fruit in our lives. Father, we seek to draw near to you through your son, Jesus, in the Holy Spirit. As we do so now, Lord, draw near to us. Open our hearts. Speak to us, Father. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, after Advent comes epiphany on the church calendar. And if you look up the word epiphany in the dictionary, you'll find that it means, one, a usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. So we'll say, oh, I had an epiphany when we finally... Understand Or two, an appearance or manifestation, especially of a divine being. And so those definitions help us to understand the purpose of this mini-season, Epiphany, on the heels of Advent. Epiphany is all about the manifestation of Jesus' glory. As John chapter 1 verse 14, the, word, the verse we just read, says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in Advent, we celebrate the word become flesh. In Epiphany, we celebrate the subsequent manifestation of his glory. And because this season Epiphany is all about Jesus's glory, it is typically, at least in the Western Hemisphere of the world, been focused on three major events in Jesus' life. So typically you'll hear a message either on the Magi's visit to Jesus as a child, or Jesus' baptism, or the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana, because those three events reveal something of Jesus' essential nature and meaning, of his ministry, that is, in a unique way. Away. And so today for us, I would like to look at the last of those three, obviously, as we've just read, the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And our passage, again consistent with the theme of Epiphany, is all about the manifestation of Jesus' glory. Our passage ends in these words, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory to his disciples, excuse me, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So let's go ahead and jump straight into our passage. It says in verse 1 that there was a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And the passage says that the mother of Jesus, obviously Mary, was there. And now this may indicate that Mary had some responsibility in the festivities not merely invited as Jesus and his disciples, but there, commentators have speculated that the wedding feast may have been uh, someone in Jesus's close family or a family relative, which seems probable because not not only was Mary there, but Jesus and his disciples were invited too. And a wedding in that culture, as I'm sure some of you are aware, was no small matter. Essentially, it was a week-long party. Family and friends would travel in from all around the region to make merry with the newlyweds, and thus to fail in some area of preparation would be a disaster. In fact, in an honor-shame culture such as theirs, if there was a party mishap, if something went wrong at the wedding feast, the bridegroom could be open to a lawsuit from the bride's relatives. It was that serious of a matter. And such is the situation of our passage. Picking up in verse 3, it says, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And so Mary, wanting to do something about the lack of wine. Herself, probably having a role in the preparation, turns to her son, Jesus. Now, we cannot be entirely sure what she was expecting from him. Did she turn to him for a miracle? Or was it that she had come to rely on his resourcefulness with Joseph's absence? The reality is we will never know exactly what Mary was requesting of Jesus And that, however, is far less important than Jesus' response to her. On the surface, it seems like a non-sequitur. A non-sequitur is when a response or conclusion does not logically follow the previous argument or statement. So, for example, if someone asks you, what is it like outside? And then you tell them, it's 2 p.m., that's a non-sequitur. Your statement does not logically follow the question asked. And that seems to be how Jesus answers Mary. She comes to him inquiring if he can do something about the lack of wine, and he responds to her, my hour has not yet come. What's going on here? What is Jesus talking talking about or getting at? Now on the immediate level, commentators have rightly understood Jesus's response to mean that he does not act according to his own initiative or anyone else's initiative, for that matter. He distances himself from his mother and his mother's authority in particular by telling her literally, what to me and you? In my translation, it's asking, woman, what does that have to do with us? But in the Hebrew, literally, it is what to me and you? It's a Hebrew idiom that Translators have trouble um, translating. The only time it's found in the New Testament um, is on the lips of a demon. The only other time it's found in the New Testament. There, scholars have translated it. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? And so the idea is something like, we, what do we have in common with each other? Um, what do we have between you and I? So it's not necessarily a rude thing for Jesus to say to his mother but it certainly is abrupt and i think the niv gets the sense across well when it says woman why do you involve me what what do i have what, what part in this is there for me and again the idea conveyed is that as jesus embarks on his public ministry there is no longer excuse me he is no longer subject to mary's authority or anyone else's. But now, he's entirely committed to the Father's will. As he will say later on, I can do nothing on my own initiative, meaning I don't act according to my own will. I don't do as I please, but instead, he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. Don't, don't necessarily make me force my hand right now. I'm acting according to the Father's timetable, and he's changing his relationship to his mother, Mary. So that interpretation is right, but there's more to it than that. Jesus responds to Mary saying, my hour has not yet come. Now, hour in the Gospel of John is not a generic term that merely refers to Jesus' ministry, but a specific term that refers to his death and resurrection. Let me take through, take you through a few usage, uh, uses of this in the gospel of John. John chapter 7, verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. So they were seeking to arrest Jesus. They wanted to capture him as he was teaching, but John tells us they didn't, because his hour, the time for his arrest Trial and crucifixion had not yet come again, John thirteen: one he tells us now before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here Jesus' hour is associated with his departure from the world, his death, resurrection, and ultimately his ascension back to the father from whom he came. And then lastly John 17 verse 1 it says Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his head his eyes to heaven he said, "Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you." He says the hour has come. He prayed this in the garden of Gethsemane moments before he would be arrested, ultimately tried and crucified. So This understanding of what the hour means in the Gospel of John, it in fact makes Jesus' response all the more strange. Again, Mary comes to Jesus seeking to get more wine, and Jesus is speaking and thinking about his death and resurrection. We need more wine, and he responds to her, My hour has not yet come. So it seems... Some way, somehow, the miracle is about more than just the servant's faith and the bridegroom being saved from humiliation. Instead, it is about the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. Consider that Jesus essentially refuses Mary's request and then acquiesces. And that tells us something about the sign, doesn't it? His hour has not yet come. That's the first thing to be said. And yet, Jesus has the power to anticipate his hour in a mysterious sign. And this is further evidenced by the Apostle John's words in verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, commentators have noticed that it's not quite clear what previous date, the time reference, the third day refers to. The gospel, uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John has a rather clunky chronology, and there's these time references, and they can't quite figure out what the third day refers to. It comes in out of the blue, so to speak. And I don't think that's accidental, because just later on in the narrative, the number three comes up again. This is... John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. It says, The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The three days is an overt reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the temple of his body, the true dwelling place of God will be lifted from the grave on the third day. So I don't think we're grasping at straws when we say that the Apostle John's time reference, the third day, can and ought to be interpreted symbolically as a testimony to the resurrection. And again, by now, we ought to expect this. Look at verse 11. John says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Turning the turning of water into wine, St. John says, is not just a miracle, but a sign. And what's interesting is that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, there's a particular Greek word that is used for Jesus' miracles that is associated with power and authority, that the Gospel of John does not use. He uses an entirely different Greek word for this purpose. It's a sign. Again, and that is, as all signs do, it points beyond itself to the reality. The bright yellow sign with a traffic light and a forward-pointing arrow on it obviously is not the traffic light. Instead, it notifies us that one is coming. And in much the same way, The signs in the Gospel of John have a similar function. There's something being revealed there. There's something going on where if we read between the lines a little bit, we might be able to determine what is happening. Therefore, all that said, in the sheer abundance and unprecedented unprecedented quality of the water become wine, we learn something about Jesus' death and resurrection about what he's come to do in this miracle we learn something about what jesus has come to bring so let's embark on that pick up in verse 5 it says his mother said to the servants whatever he says to you do it now there were six stone water pots set there for the jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each jesus said to them Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. So, of note here for us is not that Jesus merely turns water into wine, but that he does so from six stone water pots that were used for the Jewish custom of purification. That is not an accidental detail. In that time, each family would have one such pot for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing. And the Gospel of Mark were given a little editorial remark about these practices. Let me read it for you. It's Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. He says, in parentheses, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. That's what these water pots would have been for. Ceremonial cleansing. And he says, and when they came from the marketplace, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So these ceremonial washings, we know, were not merely the tradition of the elders, they were also commanded in the Torah. There were all sorts of uncleannesses, touching a dead body, for instance, or giving birth, or having a skin condition that Jews would have to wash and purify themselves of before they could be admitted into temple worship, before they could even be admitted back into normal life among their peers. It would need to be cleansed, and that was what these water pots were for. And That's why they were there at the wedding, so all the guests coming in, there'd be enough water to cleanse themselves. But we know, as did they, that these purification rituals were just that, rituals. They were ceremonies of hope. The water, though it might remove outward contaminants, ultimately could not bring about true cleansing. Uh, It could not make one pure before God. In this sense, the six stone water pots used for for purification stand for the entire system of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Like the water used for ritual cleansing, the sacrifices and the offerings of the Old Covenant could not take away the stain of sin. They were Again, merely ceremonies, rituals of hope. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 says. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have cleansed, or excuse me, would they not have ceased to be offered? because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the law and all its accompanying institutions and practices, this unknown author of the letter of Hebrews says, is only a shadow of the good things to come. That is, the whole sacrificial system with its multitude of sacrifices and offerings and cleansings was given in anticipation of Jesus' coming. It's a shadow to which Jesus is the reality. He would do what the law was unable to, he would offer himself up as a sacrifice for all sin for all time. It reminds us of Jesus' words of institution in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28 say, And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the cup, or the wine administered in the Lord's Supper, is symbolic and represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sins. And that, I believe, to go back to our passage, is what the transformation of water into wine depicts. The water of the Old Covenant was unable to bring about cleansing and moral purity before God. But the wine of the New Covenant... Jesus' own blood is able. Through his sacrifice, our sin, past, present, and future, is atoned for once for all. There doesn't need to be a continual sacrifice because Jesus' life and blood were sufficient. But again, notice, there's more to it than that. Verse 7 it says, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. At these wedding feasts, as our passage indicates, It was the custom of the family to serve the good wine first, which was very expensive in that culture, and then the poorer poorer wine later, after everyone had drunk their fill. But tasting the water which had become wine, the head waiter could not believe it. He called over the bridegroom, and he said to him, you have kept the good wine until now. And that really is one of my favorite phrases in all the scripture. You have kept the good wine until now. And that is because interpreted with all this symbolic meaning that John infuses into the passage, the good wine, the good wine is the wine that Jesus Christ brings. And so to understand what this means in its fullness We have to understand the function of wine within the biblical narrative. So in certain streams of Christianity, wine and alcohol have a bit of a bad rap. I came from a tradition where the consumption of alcohol was strictly forbidden. We'd actually get in trouble if we did. But the scriptures do not share that outlook. To be sure, they do condemn drunkenness and a boozy lifestyle. That's not in question, But they don't condemn alcohol and wine in particular as bad things. In fact, it's just the opposite. Psalm 104 is a celebration and thanksgiving of God's fatherly care over the world that he created. The psalmist glories in God's provision for the creatures of the earth. He says, and he rejoices in the fact that the Lord gives water to quench the thirst of the beasts and the wild donkeys. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle; He gives the high mountains for the wild goats and the branches for the birds of the heavens. He paints this beautiful picture of God's abundant provision for creation. The psalmist rejoices. He rejoices in uh, Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom you have made them all, The earth is full of your possessions. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. He says, you give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, and they are satisfied with good. And tucked away within Psalm 104 is a reference to God's gifts to his greatest creature, you and I, mankind. And the gifts he gives us are three in number. They are, and this is verse 15, of Psalm 104. They are wine, which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food, which sustains man's heart. So the first gift that God gives to man is food, which is literally translated bread. God has given man bread, the psalmist says, to sustain his heart. In the ancient world, and still in many parts of the world today, Bread is man's main source of sustenance. It's the strength of his heart. The next gift that God gives to man is oil. And it's given, the passage says, to make man's face glisten. The idea conveyed is that oil is for the beautification and glory of man. And the last gift, of course, is wine. The gift of wine is said to be for the purpose of making man's heart glisten glad. And this is where I'd like to focus our attention. Wine, and I'll say it again, is not to be used for drunkenness, but it is associated with joy and gladness and cheerfulness all throughout the Scriptures. It is a a specific um, blessing of obedience, Proverbs chapter 3 verse 10 tells us, and Joel chapter 2 verse 24 tells us. It is said in Judges chapter 9, verse 13, to cheer God and men. And Deuteronomy 14 tells us that the Hebrews were required to drink wine at one of the temple feasts to be, and I quote, in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. So wine is essentially, in the scriptures, it's understood to be the drink of festivity and joy, of gladness and thankfulness something that God has given us us to make us glad. And so with that very small biblical theology, let's bring it back to our passage. Jesus does not just create any old wine, but he creates the best wine. The rich and splendid wine that Jesus creates is symbolic for the joy and delight and fullness that comes to us through his death and resurrection. If wine is God's gift to make men's heart glad, this is the wine of all wines. It's the fulfillment of all such gladness. It is Jesus who, in his finished work, makes man's heart to jump for joy and to sing with thanksgiving. Jesus gives us the good wine that we long for. But not only that, remember the lavish amount of wine that Jesus creates— around 150 gallons of wine. It is reminiscent of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messianic age. There are very many of them, but I'd like to read to you this one from Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 15. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine And the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and the gardens and eat their fruit. And make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. And they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so Jesus' miracle. On one hand, the incomparable quality of the wine. On the other, the extravagant quantity of the wine fulfills these words and points to a time when they will be fulfilled completely in the kingdom of God. It speaks of the abundance and the joy and the just outright gladness at God's provision and blessing. And so this, turning water into wine, is the glory that is revealed in the sign. It is the glory of the Lord who comes to make our lives and our hearts overflow with his joy and with his love, with celebration and with gladness. Jesus brings the good wine in the work that he's come to do. He makes our hearts glad. And now this passage, as we wind down with some application, is full of devotional insight. There's so much here that can be applied to our lives when we think about the fact that it's Jesus who truly brings goodness and joy to our lives. But let me just say two things. And the first is simply that as people who claim this Jesus as Lord, the Jesus who turns water into wine, our lives should be characterized by great joy. And I don't say that as a commandment, right? as another thing for you to do. You must be joyful, but rather as an inevitable consequence of our union with Jesus Christ, as the recipients of his gracious work on our behalf, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of the kingdom. How can we not know the gladness and the joy that he brings? And I don't mean that we should know the Lord's goodness in a merely intellectual way or on paper, but instead, I mean that we should know the Lord's goodness in an uh, experiential way. The scriptures do not tell us to understand and comprehend that the Lord is good, but they tell us to taste and see that the Lord is good not to understand, not to merely comprehend in your brain, but to experience the Lord's goodness in your life, right? It's one thing to know the intricacies of what makes a good wine, the balance of acidity and sweetness, the proper alcohol content, and et cetera, et cetera, whatever it takes. But it's another thing entirely to sit around the table with loved ones and actually enjoy a glass of wine. The point is, it's one thing To intellectually know that the Lord is good. But it's another thing altogether. To experience his goodness. And that's what the passage invites us to. When it says Jesus created this extravagantly good and lavish wine. It speaks of his presence in our life. The work of his salvation being offered to us. Listen, knowledge is good. But knowledge must be accompanied by faith. Knowledge is good, but knowledge must be accompanied by faith. Because it's often faith that brings us out of the realm of mere knowledge and translates that knowledge into experience. All right, I can tell you all day about the goodness of the Lord till I'm blue in the face. But until your faith rises to meet the truth of those words, you will never taste the Lord's goodness. It will remain an abstract thing. It will remain something you read on paper, but not something you experience in your own life until your faith rises to meet those words. So you might know the forgiveness of sins, right? Yeah, I know I'm forgiven. Thank you, Lord. I'm glad for that. But do you believe in it so as to rejoice in it? Believe truly that God has wiped away your sins and does not hold them against you, and that there is peace with God. Because when one believes that, it brings rejoicing. Blessed is he to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. When you believe it, it becomes real. Again, you might know the glory that awaits you, that God is destined for those who love him. Yet, do you believe it so as to hope in it? Do you believe it so that it actually becomes a source of joy in your life, a source of perseverance and courage, knowing what's awaiting? There's a difference between merely knowing and believing. Are the truths of the Christian faith merely facts rattling around in your brain or sources of power that animate your entire life? That's the difference between merely knowledge and knowledge accompanied by faith. So what wine are we drinking? The world's wine? Is that where we're finding our joy and happiness or in the Lord's wine? Now, the second application I want to make is, is equally as straightforward, and it's to remember that it is Jesus who is the good wine. And remember, this is symbolic. The passage is symbolic. It, it communicates what's happening in Jesus' death and resurrection, right? Uh, what, what takes place there. And there are many blessings in salvation, too many to number, but the greatest blessing of salvation, without a doubt, is fellowship with God through Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. That's the culmination of salvation, to know God. Jesus says, John seventeen three, 3, uh, this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That is our reward. That is what the Lord has prepared for us. And so Jesus, whatever this good wine is, it's him. He is the good wine. And it reminds me of Augustine's famous line. This has come down to us throughout the ages. It was written in the 4th century, 5th century, excuse me. He says, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And the principle behind that is quite simple. God has made us to know him. That's our happiness. That's our greatest joy. And every person, whether they know it or not, is on a hunt to be reunited with God. And that's something we have to understand about ourselves. No one pursues evil for the sake of evil, as an end in itself. Instead, we always pursue that which we think is good for ourselves. We're always after that which is good. Now, the logic behind this is explicit in the second commandment, in the commandment to love your neighbor. How exactly is one to fulfill that commandment? The passage says, by loving your neighbor as yourself. Implied in there is that We implicitly love ourselves, that it's ingrained into our nature, and the examples that seem to stand in contradiction to this, in fact, prove it. Think about a person who tragically takes their life. Ultimately, why are they doing that? A lot of the time, it's in hopes to find something better, to find rest, to find freedom, to find escape. It's hardwired into our nature to seek that which is good for ourselves. The trouble trouble is that we don't know what's good for us. We don't know what makes for our good. We are estranged estranged from God, the good which we were created for. Thus, each one of us is destined to wander the earth, as Augustine says, restless until, uh, or excuse me, restless, longing groping after something to bring us the happiness we desperately long for. Uh, A novelist in the 1940s once said, the young man who rings the bell at a brothel is unconsciously looking for God. And that's what sin is, right? It's a restless pursuit of the right thing by the wrong means. When we go and we pursue sin or we pursue something that we know is wrong, there's something that in us, that propels us there, that we think is going to bring us good and happiness. Sin is pursuing the right thing, our own good, by the wrong means. And so each person is after God. They just don't know it's Him that they want. And so, to bring this to a conclusion, in all our wayward wandering for happiness, looking for love in all the wrong places, so to speak, we must remember that Jesus is the good wine that we're after. He's what we truly want, what our hearts long for. Our heart is restless until it rests in thee, in thee. But we often don't recognize Jesus, our Lord, as that. Because our vision is obscured and distorted by sin and the devil, he who is the very reason for our salvation often looks like the very enemy of our happiness and joy. The one who truly will bring us happiness is the one ultimately who we think is out to block our happiness and to stop us with all his commands. And so it's the fight of faith to see Jesus as he truly is. That it is he who we are after. And so the last exhortation, yes, taste and see that the Lord is good, but remember It's ultimately the Lord who is the greatest good. All these other things fail and crumble in our hands. He's the one joy that cannot be taken away from us.